Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Will you pray with me? God, as we gather around your table today, may this meal turn us toward you and toward one another. May we find our belonging and inclusion at this feast. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We've just finished up a series last week here at Pearl called Evolving Christianity. And we've been talking about distinctives of a Christian community that is being drawn forward, forward by the divine. And we've heard from a lot of you how meaningful this has been. Uh, Many of us have found Pearl together as we've been searching for a way to hold our Christian faith together with our questions, uh, our desire for a more inclusive and a more loving way of following Jesus. But I also frequently hear the question, okay, we're great with evolving Christianity, but what anchors us? What anchors us in Christianity? What ties us to the historical and worldwide community of those who follow Jesus? Uh, What if we find ourselves with a faith that is no longer recognizably Christian? I think this is a a real concern. Uh, And part of, I think, what this names for us is a sense of being unmoored, right? Untethered. And I feel this at times, Uh, like everything that once was solid has gotten a little wobbly. Uh, Does anyone watch Great British Bake Off uh, here? Uh, Saku saying wibbly wobbly this last week was the best thing I've ever heard. Wibbly wobbly. What anchors us in the Christian faith? When I was younger, I would have answered, well, the Bible and theology. The Bible and theology are our anchors, meaning the intellectual content of our beliefs, which come from Scripture, is what ties us to our historical faith. Now, please hear me. I don't want in any way to disparage intellectual beliefs, nor Scripture. Uh, If you've seen me in my office and any of the videos, you've seen the books behind me. I like intellectual things. These do matter what we believe and the way we hold scripture as a community absolutely do have important consequences. Uh, Pastor Mike's podcast, if you've had a chance to listen, Story and Table, has been exploring the ways the ideas we have, the stories we tell, work out and set tables at which we live. The stuff matters. But Here's why I find it hard now to have theology as the thing that anchors us. First, the the first blow for me was studying church history. Uh, I grew up, and maybe some of you did as well, I grew up thinking that my 20th century American church, in all important features, believed 
exactly what the early church believed. You know, like there was the early church and there was, you know, maybe some stuff at the beginning and then there was a big leap and then somewhere around like 1950, we finally got it all, you know, figured out again and we had it. But as I began to read history, it became really clear that Christians have had a lot of different ideas over time. I mean, even if we have been holding on to what I've called the Christian mysteries, incarnation, atonement, resurrection, trinity, even with those commonalities, we have explained those ideas in very different ways throughout church history. And the second thing for me, have you noticed that theological precision is no guarantee that a person is going to be good? Have you noticed this? This shook me as well. As someone who really wanted to get my theological ducks just in a row, it was a big wake-up call when I realized that some of the people I knew who had read all of the big names and could quote any of the verses were not nice. <laughs> and learning more Bible verses and theological ideas wasn't helping me much either. The idea that it's the content of our theological beliefs that really makes us Christian is hard to shake, though. I mean, we live in a Western rationalist world which overprivileges intellection and abstraction, ideas, and it devalues embodiment, experience, ways of knowing that are more intuitive or more relational. Well, perhaps what can anchor us in the wider Christian communion is not primarily the content of our beliefs, but rather our participation, our participation in Christian ways of being. So over the next two weeks, we want to explore two ancient Christian anchors, embodied rituals that have been part of our faith tradition from the very beginning, Eucharist and Baptism. These two rituals are known as sacraments. Uh, sacraments is an old Christian word. The, the original Greek word for these ceremonies was mysterion, mysteries. And the Latin sacramentum came from this Roman concept of a sacred oath between the divine and man. Uh, the sacrament then was a mystery. It was a ritual where the divine had promised to be present with us. Sacraments are symbols, but they are more than symbols. A sacrament makes present, makes tangible the very thing it's symbolizing, right? So baptism isn't just a symbol of initiation into the community or identity. It makes it tangible and manifest to us. Eucharist doesn't just symbolize inclusion at the divine table, when we practice it, we are enacting that inclusion. While technically Protestants recognize only these two rituals, Baptism and Eucharist, as sacraments, Catholics have seven, uh, but those two are explicitly associated with Jesus' life in the New Testament. It's, it's also true that many things can be sacramental. Many things can be embodied symbols that help us experience divine reality. The reason I suggest that these sacraments can serve as anchors in the Christian faith is this. Some things just have to be enacted, embodied, experienced, to really work their way into the way we see the world. 
These rituals, experienced more than understood, can help us internalize and live into the realities of Christianity rather than just talking or reading about them. Of course, like anything else in church history, you'll find if you look that there's lots of ways people have tried to explain these rituals. I mean, just take Eucharist. From transubstantiation all the way to it's just a symbol. From doing it every week to we do this once a year, maybe. Christians have been arguing over what exactly is going on at this table for centuries. But again, that history of argument is tied to the way that we in the West have privileged concept and abstraction over embodiment and relationship. Maybe being right about your theory is much less important than participating in these embodied practices and letting it have its emotional and relational and spiritual effect on us week by week, year by year just as followers of Jesus have done from the very beginning. This morning, I want to spend some extended time meditating on the experience of Eucharist. Just taking a step back, right? We do this every week, but maybe taking a step back to notice, to draw out various aspects of the experience can help us engage this metaphor with more awareness. Uh, this first thing might help us see why it's helpful to reflect and, and talk about our meanings in these symbols. So uh, I want to start with the physical orientation of the room, the physical orientation of Eucharist. That word, orientation, at its root means turning toward the east, orientation. Uh, and it's derived from Eucharist. Originally, churches were almost always built with the altar facing the east. Uh, you may notice that this is west, so uh, just another thing we're doing differently at Pearl Church. Uh, during the Eucharistic prayer then, the priest would turn to face the wall. Over time, this took on a pretty negative meaning, right? I mean, it looks like the priest is going away from the people and doing something magical back here that you can't see and then bringing back the sacraments to the people. Uh, and that's, this is what I mean when I say that embodiment matters. If you out there are experiencing the priests back to you as communicating, hey, only a special person can do this thing with God that makes Eucharist happen, well, that's not, that's not good. But the original meaning of the priest turning to the east was that the whole community together was facing east, which was symbolizing the, the dawn, the rising Christ, right? The whole community as one body going to God together, right? That's the original meaning of that ad orientem, uh, orientation. The priest was just one of the people, and the Eucharist was the work of the people, in fact, standing here, this can be uh, counterproductive as well because now there's just one of us up here facing you. The rest of us this way, stage audience, right? You can do the same thing. Uh, but there's another way of thinking about the orientation of the room. When we gather for Eucharist, we are gathering in a circle, like we're around a table. The circle is a shape of belonging. So there's a physical orientation, and we can see the room together as we stand here in a circle taking Eucharist. There's also a choreography 
to Eucharist. We start by kind of setting the table, as it were, right? We hold the elements, and we have a little conversation over them. There's a blessing. There's a back and a forth, a pause to hold the sacredness of this moment together, kind of like a toast at the beginning of a meal. And then we move forward to approach the table. This is one of my favorite moments in Eucharist. Uh, I love standing in line and watching the whole community. People you know, people that you love dearly, people who sometimes irk you a little bit, people who are very different from you, all together taking our places at this table. Fun story, uh, I decided that I wanted to ask out my husband in the Eucharist line, so that worked out for me too. Sometimes you're just behind the right person. When we're at this table, what we receive are gifts. Bread and wine. Bread and wine. Okay, so we have, we have orientation, we have choreography, and then we have these elements. Bread and wine. Uh, that stand in for the miracle of creation. And the miracle of human creativity our interdependence with this world and the generosity we experience here. I mean, think about it. Bread, flour, water, salt, and yeast. Flour, sun, soil, water, bursting forth into flowering grain. Water falling from heaven, coursing down creeks and underground. Salt, which is ocean water evaporated, leaving these flaky crystals that preserve and flavor. And yeast, that little miracle, these little microorganisms and baptisms that we now know are just everywhere waiting, just waiting for flour and water to mix so they can bubble and feed and puff and raise the dough as if by magic. Have you ever wondered who was the first person who just let flour and water go bad and was like, oh, that's a good, <laughs> that's a good thing? Or wine, wine which is grape, more yeast and thyme. These grapes, sun, soil, rain, vines bursting into little jewels that are crushed, strained, barreled, and the yeasts, more of these little life forms that are just waiting to feast on sugars and making alcohol, which mysteriously lightens our mood, making us rise, bubbling upward toward joy. What we eat and what we drink at Eucharist is the miracle of many hands at work meeting creation in all of its fecundity, the goodness of divine love on a plate and in a cup. And all of this comes together as a sacred meal, a meal, a meal that sustains us. As the psalmist cried out, Oh God, you are my God, I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you. In this meal, we see resonances of every meal, of the way we are sustained by food and satiated by drink. And we experience the, with gratitude the sustaining self-giving of God. This is my body, says Christ. This is my blood. Now, this, this has been given a lot of violent interpretations throughout church history, but N.T. Wright points out another way of reading this, uh, that Jesus is alluding to a story from the life of King David. Uh, there's a moment during a battle where David is parched, and he says kind of 
thoughtlessly. Oh, if I could just have a drink of water from that well across the enemy lines and my, my thirst would be parched. And a few of his heroes say, okay, we're going to do it. So they go and they get through enemy lines and they get to this well and they get some water and they fight their way back and they bring it to David. And he says, the Lord forbid I should drink this. Can I drink the blood of the men who went at risk of their lives? It's too precious. And he pours it out on the ground. The water was too richly bought. It was blood. It was like their blood. Now, Jesus holding the bread and cup alludes to this story. His followers accept an even more shocking gift, that the divine is the one who takes the risk. The divine is the one who joins us in, the solid, in solidarity, in our suffering, in our death. And Jesus says, drink this cup, bought at great price so that we would know this is how much God values us, how deeply God values us. Jesus is saying, you are worth all of the cost, all of the risk. Go ahead and drink. The goodness of this Eucharistic practice, the orientation, the choreography, the bread, the wine, the meal... It's not just the moments that we spend standing in line eating the bread and wine here in this room. These rituals anchor us because they encourage us to have eyes for the Eucharistic moments in our everyday lives. When we practice Eucharist, we are being encouraged to wonder if every table might be Eucharist. I think here of a story, uh, it was made into a movie back in the 90s called Babette's Feast. Babette's Feast. It was written by a woman named Karen Belixson in 1958. So there's a small, remote 19th century pietistic village on the coast of Denmark. Uh, and they take in, there's, there's a couple elderly sisters living there, and they take in this woman, Babette. She's French. She's fleeing the revolutionary violence that's going on in France at the time. And though these elderly sisters can't pay her, Babette just asks if she can be their cook. And she's a good cook, it turns out, although her flavorful food is a, a little scandalous to the good Denmark Lutherans. Many years later, we find the town is, is in trouble. They're splitting apart. They're suffering a lot of conflict, a lot of arguments. And amid the turmoil, Babette announces that she's going to cook a feast for the town, a real French dinner, which she'll pay for. And the community is baffled by all these shipments of exotic, sumptuous ingredients, things they've never seen before. But invited to the table, they find this extraordinary, lavish meal beautifully prepared for them. And as the meal progresses and they, they drink a bit, they find their hearts opening, they begin talking across their divisions, and the community begins to find healing around this table. And later it's revealed that Babette, the poor old cook, had once been the head chef of a famed Café Anglais in Paris and had spent all her savings on this meal to restore the community. She gave everything she had to bring them to life. Isn't this a Eucharistic table? Week by week, we here participate in the orientation, the choreography. We hold bread and wine as gift. We are sustained by the meal. And week by week, we are prepared to go out into the world with Eucharistic eyes to see our daily tables as sacred meals, which tell us you 
belong. You are worth all of this. Orientation. In our homes, around a table, on a picnic blanket, our meals are set in circles, turned toward one another, reconciling, drawing us in a shape of belonging. We set the plates and the napkins. We build anticipation for this shared space together. I mean, have you noticed how at parties, everybody always ends up in the kitchen waiting for the food to come out, the good smells. It's, it's so warm. Or we hover near the dining table, these spaces where we are preparing to share and serve the meal. Choreography. We move toward the table together. We sit together, all who are there, friends, people who we don't know, people that kind of irritate us, all at table together. We pass the bowls, we converse, we pause for a blessing and a toast. All those little rituals of the dinner table turn us toward the enjoyment of the gift, this meal, which is the work of human hands and the fruit of the earth, which become for us a sacred opportunity to share in belonging. And maybe the meal is prepared by the host in this loving outpouring of attention and time. Or maybe it's a potluck where every person is contributing, sharing their creativity and love. But think just how many hands, how many lives or the sunlight and the water and the soil and the microorganisms and the animals and the plants, all of creation cooperating with us in the long history of the meal that's now laid out before us. And the meal sustains us, literally but also relationally. This table is where we reconnect, where we share about our lives, our hopes and our worries, where we laugh together and we face hard realities together and where we experience our lives belonging. Might not the tables that you set be an opening to say to each who sits, eat, drink, you are worth all of this. You belong. Might not the tables you set be an opening to point to Christ who says, here's my body, here is my blood, the outpouring of my self-giving, my participation in your suffering and human life. This is how valuable you are to the divine. This is how much you belong. This is what I give so that you know you will be loved. And might not the tables that you join be an opening to receive, to move into your belonging? Not every table we join is going to feel safe, welcoming, or inclusive. Uh, We are barreling toward the holiday season, and I know that some of us are going home to sit at tables where not every part of us is welcome, where we feel tension and exclusion and pain. But perhaps part of why we practice Eucharist week in and week out is to help us practice naming that every table, no matter how imperfect, is pointing us toward Christ's table where every part of us is welcome. Maybe we practice week in and week out so that with Eucharistic eyes, we can see that every table belongs to Christ and we belong no matter what. And so, Pearl Church, a toast, a blessing, if you'd pray with me. May every table you set be a participation in Christ's table. May you know the joy of self-giving, of inviting, of making room, 
of sharing divine love for all through your creativity, time, and generosity. May every table you join be a participation in Christ's table. May you see Jesus beside you, passing the butter and radiating welcome, naming you beloved and inviting you home. May this table where we gather week in and week out be for us the table of Christ, where we learn to see through Eucharistic eyes a world of abundance, creativity, divine love, and belonging. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.